I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author and senior lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania, Lorraine Carey. We're going to be talking about her new book, her book, Lady Sitting, My Year with Nana at the End of Her Century. From cherished memories of childhood weekends with Nana to the reality of the year she spent lady-sitting, Lorraine Carey journeys through her stories of their time together and five generations of their African-American family. Weaving a narrative of her complicated relationship with Nana, a fiercely independent and often stubborn woman whose family fled the Jim Crow South and who managed her own business until 100 years old. Carrie captures the rapture's love and forgiveness that can occur in family as she bears witness to her grandmother's vibrant life. Her work has been featured in Time, TV Guide, Newsweek, and Medium.com. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Lorraine. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, And also, I have to say, Oprah describes your book as radiant. So... um, (laughs) That's yeah. a, yes. It's it's wonderful. It's wonderful to have that because sometimes people think that if a book is about uh, end of life, that it it's just going to be dreadful and sad. And um, and that you know, end of lifetime is really complicated and sometimes radiant. And I think that's obviously well said. But when you're talking about end of life, and I think that's true as a social worker, I've been on in hospitals working with many people's at end of life, but end of life doesn't always end at a hundred. So I mean that's very unique. <laughs> that's a lot of years. That's <laughs> um, a lot of years. Her, yeah, hers was actually a hundred and one, but um, for the subtitle we said at the end of her century because a yeah. hundred and one, you know, is too long. <laughs> no, hundred and one was she. How did she die? Like maybe we should, that's sort of the end. We should maybe should have started start at the beginning. But what, was she sick? Was she not sick? I mean, that's sort of that's how did she end her life? How did her life end? Nana, uh, Nana's life ended. Uh, she was the textbook for old age and natural causes. Um, with you know, her, her her heart was just finally. Um, uh, gave out. Yeah. So that's. But before that, um, before that, she'd actually had in the month before, because she wasn't getting enough oxygen regularly, she started having periods of, of real distress. That is uh, respiratory distress, but also when the oxygen didn't get to her brain, uh, she began to have psychic distress really linked to her, the fact that she was terrified of dying. Even at 101, she hadn't yet made peace uh, with it. She was just terrified. Well, did she ever make peace with it? Or, I mean, she just died being terrified? Or was anybody, you or anyone else, Um, able to alleviate that psychic pain or emotional pain? She actually was helped wonderfully by the very thing that all of us were trying to avoid, which was going into a facility about nine days before she died. Um, She had so much wanted, like, you know, whatever the percentage, 80% of Americans say they want to die at home. 
She was in our home, not her own, which would have been her preference. Um, but I think I was about to do a big 10-year anniversary for my nonprofit organization. We were up all night. She was not able to sleep. It. I just, I couldn't manage any longer. Um, and I was so afraid that with her up at night, she was going to fall or break something. I, uh, I had fallen asleep one night when I was supposed to be on guard. The hospice um, service, wonderful hospice service, offered a, f- a five-day caregiver respite. I took advantage of it at that point. And once she was in, their geriatric psychiatrists figured out the right cocktail of drugs to sort of restore her to herself. And when we went in those three or four days later, they say not to go in the first three days. We went in and my grandmother, who had been looking behind her, so worried, very irritable, really paranoid, not wanting my father to visit, like all this. My grandmother took us and I was thoroughly ready for her to be angry and cold. And she hugged me. She hugged my husband. And she said, oh, honey, oh, honey, I didn't know whether you'd be able to find me. You don't know where I have been. <laughs> and she was herself again. Almost makes me cry thinking about it. Yeah. It's interesting because that experience, I've had many of my friends whose parents have lived to that, you know, in their 90s, let's say, and and dying the similar way of your grandmother, go through that, just that horrible psychic distress. And when you mention a geriatric psychiatrist, I think that's so important because they really can make it so different an experience uh, because... You know, once people get into the nursing homes very often, they do get drugged, but not with the proper combination of cocktails that that really ease mm-hmm. their pain. I mean, that is geriatric, mm-hmm. you know, psychiatrists and probably is a growing field as we all grow older and stay longer. Yeah. And just, it was great because the geriatric part is really important to understand what the aging body can take and what it can't take. That, that's incredibly important. Well, given your grandmother's experiences, what would you want to, is there, and, and you were very close to her, obviously, let's talk about that because you spent all these weekends with Nana. Uh, you're talking about five generations of, of an African-American family. Let, um Let's now kind of backtrack and go to the beginning. Um, your first, what are your first memories of your grandmother? Oh, I don't, you know, I have, they are some of my earliest, I can't even remember. I only have one memory that is earlier than being with Nana, and that's being with my great-grandmother on the other side. I just, she was always part of our lives and I spent most of my weekends growing up with her and my pop-up at her house. Um, She would come get me. She always liked to drive a car that was sort of fancy. Uh, She would come and we would drive. We would go. She lived in New Jersey and she would say, honey, do you want to go some of those? You like those dirt roads, right? 
I loved dirt roads. I loved farms because we lived in this. She would drive. She'd say, let's get lost. And we would just drive all through the garden state and stop and get out and, and look at crops and see how the corn was growing or cranberry bogs and um, bake things, do embroidery. Um, I think the fact that I love to write books about the 19th century probably has everything to do with the fact that that childhood with her allowed me to imagine it. Yeah. As you, when you write about the 19th century, you write about your relationship with her, you do or have described it as complicated. So what made it complicated? Well, it was complicated, I think, because at bottom, my grandmother was wonderful with with children, especially little girls. I'm not sure... I'm not sure if Nana was really capable of grown-up intimacy, um, of a give-and-take. We had this moment where I remember a couple of times she was sitting in, in our room and she just banged on the side of her wheelchair and she said, why am I still alive? Why? What she wanted to do was go to bed like her father and just not wake up and have it be just perfect, right? And she was so angry at this on and on. Um, and I said to her, well, Nana, you know, maybe God wants you to have a relationship with somebody who can say no to you. Maybe, maybe that's it. Um, she didn't think that was funny. And <laughs> it wasn't. Um, but I don't, I, she was incapable of having any relationship with someone who was a power equal, who could say, no, or let's negotiate, or I hear you, but I feel differently. Um, she couldn't, that she was infuriated by that. While I was, while we were taking care of her, what I realized was everything had to do with her childhood, um, growing up in North Carolina. And she said to me, you know, one night I tucked her in and was just doing all the tucking. I said, this is how I did the kids, you know. And she said to me, you know, I don't, I don't ever remember having a mother because her mother died when she was six. Um, and, I mean, that was so... So who raised her? If her mother died when she was six, who mm-hmm. raised her? Her father. Yeah. Her father. Her father brought, brought his uh, five children from North Carolina to Philadelphia and... And raised them, they went from being uh, very wealthy um, descendants of free people of color to somebody who lost everything, like so many others did in the Depression. And and I don't I don't think they ever quite got over the shock or the shame of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so that. Obviously, that experiences or experiences, I guess, just sort of permeated her life and defined, or she let it define who she was. Well, I don't know that she had a choice in letting it. Yes, yes, it did. It did define. It also meant that um, you know, no, no man was ever able to um, to live up to uh, her papa. Nobody nobody could she she loved children 
and she loved little girls, and she just enjoyed the heck out of our childhood. It, she could play dolls. You could sew. Uh, when when my parents uh, split, I was 17. My little sister was um, 10, 9, 9 and 10. Um it was it was very difficult. My my grandmother was was sort of shut down uh, a lot, and and she, I felt as if she did not. I wanted her to keep doing for my sister as she had done for me. I wanted to go to college knowing that she would make a weekend retreat from my parents' uh, split and divorce, like she had made a weekend retreat from when I was a kid from my parents' arguments. Uh, that's what I was hoping for. And um, did it happen did in the way you wanted it to, the way you wanted it to? Well, it did not. And what that taught me was what I want isn't what other people do. So if you want weekend retreats, go get her yourself on the weekends. You know, you're 18 now, do it. But the other thing was was that um, sh- she didn't... Uh, sh- she didn't feel... Uh, she took sides. She took sides, and it felt to me like if you have grandchildren, you don't take sides. Because... If you take sides against the mother, the the grandchildren will be left out. So if that was that was all that we we needed to work through that ourselves, and I think we did. Um, I mean, it sounds like she was <laughs> to put a, a kind of a black and white kind of person. There's no in between, right? There's <laughs> no gray, <laughs> right? As she always said to me, I always liked math better. You know, you could just uh-huh. find an answer. Yeah. Well, that's what she as you're describing her, that's what it sounds like. Yes, there is an answer. There's a science to it, right? The ambivalence was, it's uncomfortable. It's right. Very, very, un- very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. Yeah. And, but when, had, and then another and thing father, we're talking Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. I was saying she and my father had seven years where they did not speak, which <laughs> sort of was another, it, it's just the way that that side of the family handled con- or didn't handle conflict so what can we learn from that because seven years estranged from her son um because of whatever the issue was the you know there's always some usually a precipitating issue but there's a lot of stuff underneath that has been mm-hmm. brought, you know cooking for many many years um yeah how do you it's kind of a matter, and just I, before you answer the question, I'm, it, yeah. you know, given what you've said, it's sort of like a, it, it kind of describes what's happening in our community today. You know, your family yeah. is sort of a microcosm of all this, you know, us and them kind of thing that we're experiencing now in our country. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sadly, and what what I what I learned from it is that. Um, I learned a lot from from trying to think about um, what what therapists say about that, which is you know my 
what's how how can we get um I'd rather be friends than be right. Can can there is there a way to be friends rather than be right? Are there things that I am doing that I don't know that are making somebody else crazy? Let can I assume somebody else's humanity and try to find the places where we can work together and agree rather than go right to the disagreement and blow it up into um, hate and a lack of humanity. Like, I, And I learned a lot of that from going back to 19th century, from African-American history, too, where all of the slave narratives, two a one, they all talk about the actual political, physical harm that was done to them. And they also talk about the moral and psychological harm that was done to the people who owned them by this system, which doesn't just encourage corruption. Slavery didn't just encourage corruption, but was a corruption of human power relationships. But, I mean, they didn't just say... um, what Jefferson thought, Jefferson said in his notes on the state of Virginia that if you can never free black people because they will remember what was done to them and will take their revenge. But in fact, what they wanted was freedom and equality, not revenge. They wanted equity, not revenge. And so that's what I learned. That's what her father knew, I think. Um, and that's what that's what our family taught me. Figure out how to get how to get friends and then get right, rather than get my own first. Sometimes it's just a, maybe you can't get to the friends, but at least be acquaintances, and then start, <laughs> <laughs> and, and then morph into right. friendship if possible. But the humanity is what right. you talk about. Humanity, yeah. Yeah, no, I meant in a friends in a family, like somebody you love to stay friends with. But yes, political this political thing. No, let's let's just try to be um, citizens together first. Exactly. Well, you, as I understand yeah. it, you went to one of the most well prestigious universities. But backtracking a little, you went to St. Paul's uh, School in New Hampshire. How was that? I mean, you, I, I don't know what years you were there, Boy. but uh... <laughs> I was there a million years ago, a long time ago. Uh, right at the beginning of co-education and integration. How was it? It was so complex for me that, um, you know, 20 years later, I had to write a book about it. Um, I spent a lot of time writing Black Eyes, trying to understand, (laughs) you know, like they always say, oh, what just happened? Well, for me, it was, whoa, what what happened in my adolescence? What was that? Um, It was... It was, um, you know, the best and the the worst. It was um, an amazing educational experience. I. It was uh, also. It yeah. was also. Um, it clearly, if if you were not just built for it, it could be the most wounding thing ever. That is so well said, and I, I have to say, coming from a. different but similar place because when I saw that you went to St. Paul's 
uh, I went to Abbott Academy, the sister school of Andover, right at the time that you were at St. Paul's. And as that's your description. Uh, At that time, I'm white, but Jewish. And Jews were, two Jews in the class, I think. And some kids kids in my class, I remember saying, well, I've never really met a Jew before. And, um, you know, we used to have our Sunday service, which should have been Saturday, but they were Sunday, anyway, in the basement of the building, uh, <laughs> all of those kinds of things. And uh, But yet, it's a very elite school academically. I mean, I, I can't describe it any better than you did, but if you can get through it. Um, <laughs> uh, not every, but not everybody did. No, not everybody did. That's, You're right. Not everybody did. And some people who did came out very, very wounded and, and ashamed of the wounds because mm-hmm. as I was interviewing uh, my classmates, you know, before writing the book, it's like, okay, oh, you got a really great education, you were on scholarship, and it was hard. Poor baby. Yep. I mean, no, ain't nobody want to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Shut up and use it to benefit other people, which which I think is valid. But the other thing is you can't use it to benefit yourself or other people if you're all knotted up inside about it and, and, and come out not knowing who the heck you are. Um, I didn't feel that. I didn't feel like I didn't know who I was, partly because I went so old. I mean, I didn't go until I was in 11th grade. Um, so I didn't go as a ninth grade nubby. Um, and, and I think the family I had had, this family that I've described to you in Lady City, had really done a lot of preparing me for figuring out um, how can I how can I do a working relationship? Where can I not? You know, the the African American um, church that says, how can you be um, in this but not of it? What will you take? What will you not take? What do you not believe? How do you live in a society that says that you are inferior and not believe that you are inferior? How do you do that? So you have to figure psychologically, you have to figure that out. I think, I mean, there are so many ways that so many cultures, there are so many things we have to learn from Jewish communities all over the entire world that, you know, how do you figure out anti-Semitism and live in it, but not be poisoned by it? It's very difficult, psychic. It's very difficult. And you need a whole community. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things that, going back to the prep school thing, is that, uh, I mean, I my way of handling things was to, I found a best friend, she and I. She, she was mm-hmm. a California gal, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, blonde. Christian, but California, and she and her mother had gone to Abbott, so she was wondering how how could she ever have sent her there? And we were sort of partners in crime. She was she was the Beach Boys, I was Bob Dylan, and we've been friends ever since. So it was sort of <laughs> finding an ally, right? Finding that friend. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, love, 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 and finding a way to get get that love and hold on to it is hugely hugely important and it's always evolving good for her yeah 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 so 
Now you're at yeah. Penn, which is a whole different, uh, very, uh, it's a, isn't a different scenario, right? It's a very different scenario. Penn yeah. was started by Ben Franklin in reaction to the great Christian academies of the time. For it, and it was for working, um, for working men who wanted to learn stuff. So, you know, sometimes it feels like a big Votech school. It's very pre-professional, very professional, uh, very secular. So we have the largest numbers in the Ivy Leagues of um, international, of, of Jews, of Muslims, of first year, um, not first year, uh, first generation uh, college students. I don't know if it's the largest first generation, but it's a very robust group. In a very robust city, Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It is. It we is only have where yeah. we Go ahead. Sorry. I, I was gonna... saying where we did, it was a perfect place to do our um, Vote That John, which was a youth voting um, project that I worked on uh, all last, since 2018. Perfect city for it. Robust, young, feisty. Um, you know, when we won the Super Bowl, Philadelphians, they had to grease the light poles to stop Philadelphians from climbing them. I mean, this is a rocky city. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, crazy city. Great inter- great talking to you. We only have a couple minutes left. So you mentioned a couple things that I think uh, listeners would be interested in. Your website for your book, for your work, for the project that you just mentioned. Um, so give us those. Sure, sure. That website is Lorraine Carey, L-O-R-E-N-E-C-A-R-Y dot com. And the thing is, make sure it's Carey without the E. Um, and that'll tell you all the stuff. I've done a play recently called My General Tubman. Um, I do blogs. Um, the Vote That John is ongoing, and we would love to get more youth involved. Um I think I think that's it, LorraineCarry.com, and everything mostly is there. Okay, so you said the vote that, say that again, the vote that John? Vote, vote uh-huh. that John, J-A-W-N. That's an, a wonderful Instagram site. Uh, John is Philadelphia slang for whatchamacallit. So whatever the kids came up with it, whatever your issues are, vote them. Great. And, vote and that John, sort of Lorraine. Like voting you. Mm-hmm. 30 seconds, so I'm going to hate to cut you off, but I want to name, list, name the bo- uh, book again, Lady Sitting, My Year with Nana at the End of Her Century. We've been talking about that. And many other things with Lorraine Carey. So go to those websites, go to her blog. Um, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you so very much. I, I really appreciate it. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 